Good morning, travelers, pre-med students, and undergraduates. Welcome to Doctors Inn. This is where medical experiences are shared, study strategies are examined, and life lessons with a sprinkle of advice and habits are served. My name is MD Hawk. I am a pre-med student in New York City. This podcast features a wide range of proactive physicians who have taken strides toward global, public, gender, and mental health initiatives to ultimately improve healthcare around the world. To no further ado, let us unwind the journey of medicine and life together. Three, two, one, and we are live. We are joined by Dr. Ruhi Jelani today. Dr. Jelani is a renowned fertility doctor at Vios Fertility in Chicago. She is a fellow of the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. She is a well-known and highly skilled reproductive, endocrinologist, and infertility specialist. Dr. Jelani started her medical journey in the Caribbean at the Ross University of Medicine. She finished her residency and fellowship at Wayne State University Detroit Medical Center. She performed research on oncofertility where she explored the effects of toxins on reproductive function, chemotherapy, and oocyte cryopreservation to give those facing cancer a better chance of seeing their dreams of parenthood come true. Her research won her numerous awards and grants in reproductive medicine. She has authored a variety of publications and book chapters in well-known journals, highlighting cutting-edge REI advancements from pre-implantation genetic diagnosis to enhanced embryo transfer. Dr. Jelani has been actively pushing against the stigma of fertility issues in both men and women in order to produce a healthier space for discussion. And we can all appreciate that. You can find Dr. Jelani on Instagram at Ruhi Jelani MD. That's R O O H I J E E L A N I M D or at viosfertility.com slash Ruhi Jelani MD. Without further ado, let us welcome Dr. Jelani to the inn. Welcome, Dr. Jelani. Thank you so much for doing this. It was an absolute pleasure. I mean, I know we had such uh, trouble uh, scheduling, but here we are. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm so sorry about the chaos. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not a problem. No, no, it's it's completely fine. You're a very busy woman, and I just really appreciate it. How's everything going? Good. Enjoying a beautiful, yeah, yeah fall day. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Uh, you recently posted about keeping hopes up. And what I want to start with is your field of medicine. Uh, you sort of became one of the leading doctors in the field of fertility. Uh, so can you just walk us down the path of what got you started? What was the driving force that led you to decide on the specialty? Yeah. So I knew very early on that I wanted to be a fertility doctor. I actually have PCOS myself, and it's being from a very cultured family. We don't really talk about um, periods and irregular cycles and what that means. But my mom was very proactive in that she took me to figure out why my cycles were irregular, what's going on. And I was very young. And the doctor she took me to was actually a reproductive endocrine and infertility doctor. So we tend to think of fertility, but she took me for the endocrine aspect of it. And when she took Mm -hmm. me there, um, I was just shocked. I was like, well, I've never been to an office like that with one, just so many mixed emotions in the waiting room. And then when I went in and um, you're too young for this, but back in the day, doctors would have like posters explaining like anatomy and, you know, okay. it wasn't as mm-hmm. boutique, it was more medical. So I was like, wow, like what's on these walls? There was like, you know, penis, vaginas, like babies being born. And I'm yeah. like, this is insane. Where did my mom take me? Right. Oh my God. <laughs> I can imagine the trauma. Yeah. And I was like a teenager. So I asked the doctor, I'm like, well, what kind of doctor are you? You know, and you're used mm-hmm. to being at a pediatrician where it's, everything's like colorful. And, PG. Yeah. PG. <laughs> yeah. 
word. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Go for it. Um, and she was like, I make babies. And, she, and I was like, oh, my God. Like my, It was like my literally somebody shattered my world. And I was like, oh, my God. You can make a baby. I thought God made babies. I want to. Be- <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> so it led to a whole spiral, like, you know, showcase of like, okay, there's a whole new world out there. Yeah. And that's how you got started. Okay. So I started and I'm, I actually told her I'm going to come and work with her one day. And then she would tease and she'd be like, well, I'm too old. Do you know how old I am? Do you know how much school you have to go to? I'm not going to work that long. And I came back to work with her before she retired. We worked together for three years. Hey, look at that. Now you made it work. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's a really beautiful story. It's it's pretty fun to say the least. Um, yeah, I mean, you dove into fertility and like now you're very well recognized for it. And you're, I would say an activist in this field um you really highlight all the research that goes on so just to kind of dive into that one of your recent posts you actually said that one in eight couples deal with the problems on infertility which is either partner or both partners cannot produce an offspring it's also like a bad for men as well because ed is often like memed and joked about as well so um Obviously, we will get into infertility in women, but for now, uh, what can men do for infertility? I think it's, you know, I you brought up such a good point. I think there's such a lack of um, education on that topic. So I always tell my male partners, too, when I'm doing my consults, that, and we do a lot of same-sex males as well, that there's there could be male factor infertility. We just don't understand the hormonal pathway as well as we do with the female. So just like we do with anything that we don't understand, we kind of shoo it off. So I tell them that, you know, we have a male reproductive urologist on staff um, that focuses on male factor infertility, hormones, and what that may mean for the male partner and how do you optimize that. So don't ever be ashamed to seek help. It takes two to make a baby. Yeah, for sure. Definitely the case. Uh, So how can we remove the stigma with infertility in men and women? I mean, you're an advocate of this. So what's your take? I always say educate, right? We don't talk about it, hear about it, and then we don't do it. So the more we talk about it, the more I post about it. Every time you would think it's the same followers, but then I post the same topic and I get, you know, even more questions and different angles that I myself am like, oh, that's so interesting. Mm-hmm. I want to do a new patient consult, you know, and then I truly hear like this uneducated, like what are people thinking? And I think kind of having gone through this myself, so much of this, I can say, well, I, I don't recall this or I don't remember somebody explaining it to me, you know, or even learning about it in my textbook. Um, So educate, advocate for yourself, advocate for your partner, let people know it's not, it's okay to not be okay. Mm -hmm. And it takes two to make a baby. So we tend to think female, but it can be both. Right. And uh, you brought up something interesting. So educate is obviously the main key factor. And so obviously there's a genetic component uh, that leads to this problem with infertility in both men and women. Is there a pattern, for instance, you know, if a woman's mom, for instance, had a miscarriage in the past, should the daughter still get tested even even if she's healthy and she's on a well path? I always say yes. It's never to, it's kind of like saying, if there's an opportunity to find out what you want to find out or not. And most people would say, yeah, I want to know. Because fertility, although most of it's genetic, you inherit two X chromosomes to be a female and one from your mom and one's from your dad. And it doesn't necessarily have to be reflective of your mom's history. It could be so chaotic. Like my mom and sister had no issues getting pregnant, Mm -hmm. but I did. They didn't have PCOS, but 
I found out later on that some of my cousins did and other people had trouble getting pregnant, but it didn't come directly from my mom or my sister didn't have it. So, you know, I don't think it hurts to find out, especially if you like to know knowledge is always power. Yeah. uh, Speaking of knowledge is always power. uh, It's definitely kind of recommended to get tested, especially with the average age of a first time mom being later into the stages as we progress into the future like right now i think it's like 29.9 years nearly 30 yeah. years for for a woman um and it's because women are starting to focus more on themselves on their careers so starting a family is obviously a little bit delayed but is egg freezing something that you would suggest or recommend yes i always think it's good it's kind of like an insurance policy mm-hmm. to know that you know you have something kind of waiting there for you if you need it and if you don't need it that's okay. But it really alleviates a lot of anxiety and a lot of like fear. And some people even said, if you look at some of the studies, eliminates a settling factor. Like you're just settling because you're most people actually um, don't have a kid because they're not with the right partner. Yeah. So you don't have. Yeah. Isn't that surprising? You would think I thought it was other, you know, like socioeconomic status or waiting for the right job. Most people not having the right person to reproduce with. Yeah. So there's a level of compatibility. Yeah, for sure. Wow. The other thing is also it is sometimes the case that maybe like young women who are undergoing any forms of cancer therapy, like chemotherapy, freeze their eggs. And you talked about like research and like literature. So we can probably like dive into your research here. Um, So can you please expand on cancer and how it affects fertility and what prevention methods can be done. Yeah. So not only cancer, but I want to add in last year, the Society of um, Rheumatology um, said that patients who have autoimmune conditions like lupus, which may impact or thyroid disorders, which may impact their ovarian function and reserve should be offered proactive or elective egg freezing and embryo creation because they've noticed a strong correlation to that. And the medications that they're starting to use and test are very similar to chemotherapy. So cyclophosphamide and iphosphamide, which are the most common and most um, effective medication for breast cancer, are also very toxic. So some studies have shown that they cause follicular recruitment, meaning they cause activation of your ovarian pool and then destruction, accelerated destruction. And other studies and other doctors tend to think that are not in reproductive fertility or endocrinology think, well, resumption of menses is a good sign that your periods are back, but it's actually not. Resumption of menses does not mean you're fertile. Most of these patients, if they're younger, will get their period back, but they still will have a very hard time conceiving because now their chromosomes and their eggs have all been destroyed by um, this chemotherapy. Yeah. And you brought us something very interesting. You said some doctors, you know, like who are not in this field of endocrinology, they view this, you know, the return of menses as something positive or it's it's fixed. And that kind of shows goes to highlight like there's there's always these nuances on like how a case or a patient's case can be interpreted and that may lead to different types of treatment. And yeah, I mean it's pretty interesting to say the least how there's like this variance in how we treat uh, patients. Yes, 100%. But I think I think we're doing a very good job. And I think with social media and being just having kind of a lot more access to care and a knowledge base really helps because now I feel like we have the option and the opportunity to scream up top from the mountain. So even if a provider doesn't offer that, option to you can investigate and you see a lot more about it like we're a lot more open 
Yeah, and we're a lot more interconnected through social media and obviously research as well. Like doctors right now have access to PubMed, they have access to NCBI, it's just so many wonderful resources. And, and I, I'm glad that you keep up with the research all the time. I mean, it's fantastic. All your posts, like, I mean, like a lot of them in the captions, there's always these statistics of like highlighting the new research. And I think it's it's great for patients too. So thank you so much for that. Thank you. That It helps. That one helps me kind of stay on top of my game. And two, I think it's such a new field and you have to be, you know, it's evolving. It would, I think we start, we stop growing as a person and as a doctor when we kind of get comfortable mm. in our own skin saying, this is what I'm going to do because majority says it. It shouldn't be like that. There's so much more to learn. Yeah, and especially with uh, research just evolving. Speaking of research, uh, you have been very successful, as I said in the introduction, with your research presentations with papers, often winning you know, awards for your research. Uh, so we can kind of segue into pre-med uh, advice. So how can a pre-med or a medical student become recognized for their research? Because, I mean, let's face it, uh, like nowadays, every doctor in training is required to do research. So do you have any advice in regards to this? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. I always tell. So what I did was I went to Ross, which is a Caribbean school, and I knew I wanted to match into a very competitive fellowship. And right away, everyone's mm -hmm. like, Oh, you can't do that. That's not going to happen. And I was like, Well, of course, it's going to happen. Anyone can do what they want to do. And I was researching into my like into the field I wanted to match in. So know kind of know what you want, you don't have to be but if you know, you want to kind of like do plastic surgery, then there's a million ways to get about it. So I know for any field, like you said, research is very important. So align yourself with somebody who's very prolific. So I found a big genetic center in Chicago. And I was like, Hey, I know you guys do a lot of cool cases like HLA matching, you know, like save your siblings and um, IVF to create these babies. Like I want in, like, how can I help you? And they're like, Oh, come data mine. And I was like, sure, I'll come data mine. And I started data mining from them. Then I became their research coordinator. And this was done in between my classes. And I continued to work nights or post, you know, post, like when I went to Ross, you would get these two breaks in between. They're called like post um, trimester breaks. And then I would do two weeks there and mm -hmm. then I'd work on papers and send them abstracts. And so it just became a really good relationship. And I did that all the way. So that helped me match. I presented at a national conference as a price paper as a medical student. I got a very competitive residency and got a very competitive fellowship, but I never broke those ties. Like those were the ties that kind of took me all the way to where I am today. So find what makes you happy. And you don't have to know, like my little brother's applying now and he doesn't, he, he likes everything. So just he aligned himself with different areas. So he likes cardiology, he likes GI. So he did just do research, like just set your application apart. From your answer, there's two things that I'm hearing. Um, the first being you have to be proactive with your research, like not just doing passive research, but actively looking into it. And the second thing is developing that connection with your PI, with other lab personnel. Correct. Yeah. And I think also as a pre-med, it gets disappointing because you do a lot of work, right? Like, and then you don't get your name where it should be. And you're not, you know, you don't get to make a lot of the decisions. And you may know a lot more of this than most people on that paper do, but it's okay. Like you, you will get there. And I think that was really hard for me to understand. I didn't really have uh, anybody in my family to kind of ask, like, what should I do this? So I was constantly like, am I getting bullied? Am I getting used? But you will get your spot and it's be your, ask them like, Hey, I'm doing this work. Can I, you know, set expectations early on. What can I expect? 
Am I going to be on the paper? Am I going to be on the abstract? So at least it's not disappointing and they know what you want from it, right? Because of course you want something out of it. Perfectly said. Like just like setting a goal, talking about it, being very yeah. transparent with what you want, what they are willing to offer. Yeah. Um. So was, since you're very active on research, was MD-PhD something you considered? You know, I'm actually finishing it. So I end, ended up doing... Congratulations. Uh, Thank you. Um, I did my fellowship in reproductive endocrine and out of that three years, 18 months are research month. And I actually converted that into a worker at an NIH grant, a K-12. It's a women's reproductive health research grant. And I use, so it's 75% research and 25% clinical. And then I used that thesis to do my PhD thesis. And I was able to use a lot of my med school credits to apply to my um, reproductive physiology PhD. Um, so I'm still working on that, but I'm almost done. Talk about optimization. Wow. I mean, this is very impressive. So in one of your interviews, I'm just going to go back to the Caribbeans. Um, in one of your interviews, you actually mentioned that there were no fertility doctors from the Caribbean. And so you were determined to be the first. Can you ex please explain why that is the case? Why is there a stigma behind Caribbean medical schools in terms of competition for residency, fellowship, etc.? Yeah, I think from so I interview now residents and fellows. And I think the premise behind that is their track record is not as proven as some mm. of the U.S. grads. Like they had a goal and they knew what it was to get in, but they didn't meet that goal. And then they went to the Caribbean. So it's harder when you're in residency, because even though you're working 80 hours a week, you still have to take your USMLE 3. You have passed your board. So I think that stigma in some states still exists. It's not always true. I think in REI is for all international grads and DOs. So you have to know what fields you want to get into. So I know for REI, which I knew very early on, it was they prefer US-based Ivy League MDs. And then wow. it's international grads, but like not US international, but like international international. So they're comparable to they're in their country and like they're only fault is their visa or you know they are coming on there and then it's caribbean and then it's do but not all fields are like that so that's specific for me and it's state specific also so illinois has the biggest do school so i didn't get that many interviews in illinois even though i was i had top at ross i had a great board scores 99 percentile like 10 publications national meetings but i had like two interviews out of the eight programs in illinois because they favor DO because Midwestern has an established relationship. In Michigan, and I had like all Ivy League, I interviewed at like Yale, Hopkins and everywhere. But you would think, well, it didn't get UIC, you know, because it's it just matters what you want to do. But I could get all these Ivy League. So it just varies. I think the reason why people have that is because that stigma from what I understand, but they're slowly starting to break it. Yeah. I think especially now it's going to be even more important, no matter what school you go to, to set your, start setting your resume apart earlier as a pre-med, because now medical school, all your boards are going to be just pass fail. There's going to be no percentile to kind of say, oh, I got a 99 percentile. So now if everyone's going to be just a pass fail, what are you going to use to set your application apart is going to be important. Wow, that is a lot of great advice. Thank you so much for that. I mean, it's it's pretty surreal because of 
established connections with institutions, it yeah. affects students so much. Yeah. Wow. And I mean, honestly, it is still truly what you make of it. You graduated from Ross, uh, and now you're one of the most recognized doctors in the field of fertility. So yeah, I mean, it's fantastic. It just really goes to show, like. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. Uh. So how was your journey in the in the Caribbean, like in terms of the atmosphere? It's, it's obviously warmer there. Yeah, it was nice. It wasn't nice as you would think. It definitely wasn't like, and now it's in the Bahamas. So I can imagine the Bahamas being much nicer. Ross, um, it was farther away from home. It was hard to get there. You, There's no direct flight and you'd have to go on this little mini plane. So you'd have to go from here to Puerto Rico then board a really tiny island plane and then fly in. There was no food. So you'd have to live on canned goods. But it went by really fast. And the relationships you build there are amazing. Like I'm still best friends with everyone that I studied with. Everyone's in there for one purpose. And, you know, it's to succeed. And I have two best friends who are plastic surgeons. And I have some that are like amazing trauma surgeons. It's just you see all of the success there. And it's just amazing to see. That's incredible. Do you have any recommendations for anyone who's applying to Caribbean medical schools? Yeah, um, I really like Ross, but I think all of them are really good. Study hard no matter what med school you go to and start early. Try to find what you like. And it doesn't hurt to like shadow. Say, hey, I want to shadow you. I'm starting med school. I may like this. I want to get to know the field. And that's okay. Thank you. Um, I do want to kind of bring it back to the family. You have a ton of pictures of your family with your kids, husband on your feet. I mean, I mean, your captions, as I talked about, they're beautifully crafted and they all contribute to a similar theme, which is that your family is one of your top priorities. So how do you maintain the work-life balance as a physician and all the other work that you're doing, like in terms of research around fertility, advocacy, like how is that all kind of fitting into the schedule? I have a very supportive husband. Um, he's also very, he likes his work a lot. So we both like what we do. He's very passionate about it. He's an immigration lawyer. And of course, with all the stuff going on outside the world, he's very busy. So I think he's very understanding of what I do. And he, he lets me be me. Um, and I think that's important to have a partner that's equally supportive. And I think both of us are very good role models for our kids because they see what we do and what we work. And they're, they're very understanding. You know, one of my patients brought a baby just to show me like from far away. And my son was like, you helped make a baby. And to him, it was oh like, gosh. you should just see in his eyes to like see a baby that, you know, that I helped create. And it's just, it's like magical. So they're a very big part of what both my husband and I do and they're exposed to it early on and and some people choose not to do that which is okay but I, I like to do that my mom was a stay-at-home mom and I love her to death but I didn't have that so I kind of felt like I had to explore my own things like I let me find out what I want to do and I had great role models her older brother was a doctor and I was like oh this looks fun I'm gonna be him <laughs> you know so I think just having that early kind of role model things that you like you don't like is important and from a fertility perspective, I like my patients to see that it's possible. I had a lot of infertility and I have two beautiful kids and families come in so many different shapes and sizes and you can make your family whatever you want. And I think the last part is it makes me a human for them to see that I have a husband and life and my kids. And I think they feel more connected to me. Like I would if my doctor said, here are my kids. This is how I had them. I had my daughter spontaneously after five years of infertility. And to see that connection that I have with my kids, I think it makes me a human. Wow. That's a beautiful note to end on. And so just uh, the last topic that I want to hit, um, as per the title of this podcast, Doctors In, let's go through 
through a guided story as a closing remark, we would like to imagine that you are a traveler who stopped by Doctor's Inn to rest for lunch. Before you leave, the innkeeper, which is me, asks you to share one quote or piece of advice so that he can frame it on his wall. What would that piece of advice be? It can be something that you live your life by, for example, a principle or an ideology. Everyone's given the same 24 hours in a day. Um, it's just what you do with it that varies. So I Perfect. love it. Love to hear it. Now, with all that said, if someone in the audience has any questions or interest in learning more about fertility, research, Caribbean medical schools, and the culture abroad, or the work that you're doing right now, where can they find you? At Ruhi Jelani MD on Instagram, also on Twitter with the same name. And soon I'll have a website and YouTube. I am very excited. Stay tuned. <laughs> yes. And TikTok. I love not as big on TikTok. But I'm trying. <laughs> okay. No, I mean, uh, that's a wonderful platform to to actually spread advocacy. So, yeah, that's that's pretty exciting. Um, Thank you so much, Dr. Jelani, for taking your time out for this. I know uh, it's been pretty hectic, but we made <laughs> it. We, we were able to do it, and I'm so excited. I think we we had a ton of great information. You had so many advice for pre-meds and obviously, you know, highlighting infertility issues. And, yeah, we just really appreciate our time. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure. All right, a major thank you to all you lovely homo sapiens who stopped by Doctors In. All the show notes can be found on www.doctorsinpodcast.com See you next time. Bye!